Well, it's a great pleasure to come and share with you this morning. Uh, I can't tell you what a relief it is to be preaching in English, not Mandarin this time around. Let's, um, let's come before God and pray as we come to his word. Father God, thank you for the book of Numbers and thank you that it is your word. Thank you that your word always teaches us and we pray that today you would um, remind us that like the Israelites, we are a shaky, flaky people and that we need your grace and uh, we need your provision in order to have a relationship with you and to come into your presence. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I have a love-hate relationship with Google Maps. On the one hand, it's amazingly convenient, isn't it? Um, but there was a day, I know this, you'll find this hard to believe, but back in the dark ages when I was young, that I actually had to use a book called a street directory. I actually had to physically find a map and to read the map to find my way. And when I was driving by myself, I actually had to write down what street I was going to turn in. It was a real pain in the neck. Now, of course, my phone tells me where to go. And mostly it's right. But there are times when Google Maps has a brain freeze and tells me to go to Hurstville via Manly or something like that. <laughs> partly because of that, but partly because of my male, male pride, I sometimes take matters into my own hands. When my phone says to go straight ahead, I decide to turn right. I follow my nose and I think, yeah, I know where to go. This will get me there. When Julie and the boys are with me, they, at this point they groan and complain because they know that we're going to get hopelessly lost. No worries, I tell them. I've got an instinct for finding my way. This is a shortcut. Now, it hurts me to admit it, but they're usually right. Instead of getting to the beach, we end up in some industrial wasteland, <laughs> miles from anywhere. The term dad shortcut has become a byword in our family. Now, any time I suggest using my initiative and ignoring Google Maps, I face a mutiny in the car. The silly thing is, I, I don't learn from my mistakes. Even after repeated excursion to waste facilities, no through roads, even impassable four-wheel drive tracks... I still have this mindless optimism that, yeah, I know where to go. Yeah, this will get us there. I'll shave minutes off the trip by going this way. But I keep making the same mistakes and I never seem to learn. And in today's passage in the book of Numbers, it looks like God's people are also doomed to repeat their mistakes. Back in chapter 14, they grumbled and rebelled against God's command to enter the land because of the bad report that the spies brought back. As a consequence, God swore that none of that generation except Caleb and Joshua would live in the land. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years but they didn't learn from their mistakes. Time and time again they grumbled and rebelled against God and Moses in the desert the rebellion of Korah, complaining against having nothing to eat, no, no water, 
falling into sexual sin with the Moabites. They wandered until that whole generation died. And now at the end of the book, there's a new generation. They are about to go into the land of Canaan. But it looks like history is repeating itself. It seems like nothing's changed with this new generation. It looks like at the 11th hour, two of the tribes are pulling out of the deal and saying they'd rather stay on the other side of the Jordan. As the book of Numbers wraps up, we're left wondering, how is this going to end? Is this shaky, flaky people ever going to make it into the land? Our passage starts off in chapter 31 with God telling Moses to take revenge over the Midianites. At first glance, this doesn't seem to have much to do with going into the land. But as we dig deeper, we'll see that this whole section, including this chapter, is about preparing the people to enter the promised land as God's people. And in this first section, it's about preparing for life in the land under God's people, under a holy God. So what's going on here? The Midianites are a kind of a loose alliance of different nations. They include the Amalekites. If you, it, it, those of you who know your Old Testament that may know that they made war with the Israelites back in Exodus chapter 17 after they came out of Egypt. And also the Moabites. Remember back in Numbers 25 when the Moabite women led the Israelites astray into sexual sin and idol worship. It seems that that's the main reason for the war against the Amalekites here, to punish the Moabites for what they did. It's not so much the battle itself that's the focus here in this chapter as to what it says about God's, how God's people were to conduct themselves. It's about how they would keep themselves pure and dwell with God in the land. After the battle, we told that all the Midianite men were killed, but Moses was angry because the Israelites failed to, or they allowed the women to live in verses 14 to 15. Now, to our ears, that seems pretty brutal, doesn't it? It's pretty hard to hear, to kill the women. But verse 16 tells us why. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord in what happened at Peor, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. The reason why God said to destroy the people was that they threatened to turn them away from God. And a holy God cannot dwell with a people who turn to idolatry and sin. It was crucial that the Israelites kept themselves pure so that they could live with God as they go into the land. And that's the focus of the commands that God gives in verses 19 to 24. Anyone who has shed blood needed to purify themselves and their clothing and everything that they touched needed to be purified. Have a look at verse 22. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, tin, lead and everything else that can withstand fire 
must be put through the fire and then it will be clean. And then everything else had to be cleansed with water. Why? Because they are living with a holy God. He cannot dwell with anything impure. The Israelites could only go with God into the land if they stayed ceremonially clean. Anything that threatened that purity, objects or people or sin of any kind, had to be destroyed or purified. So God is preparing his people to enter the land. Another reason for including this battle with the Amalekites is that it's like a trial run for the battles that the Israelites would face when they go into the land of Canaan. They were told to wipe the, the Canaanites out or else they would become a snare to them and drag them away from God. And they had to remain pure like they do in chapter 31. And then the rest of the chapter is about how they were to divide the spoils evenly amongst the fighting men and the people just as they would when they went into the land and made war amongst the Canaanites. So in order to enter the land, the Israelites had to be pure because God is a holy God. They couldn't be contaminated by sin. They couldn't allow themselves to be led astray by the neighbouring people. Otherwise they could not live with them in the land. God could not live with them. Well, chapter 31 ends well with the Midianites beaten and the spoils are divided amongst the people. The march towards the land continues. It looks like things are going well. But then in the next two chapters we face a roadblock. The plan threatens to derail as two of the tribes want to go their own way rather than following God's plan. It looks like an ancient version of Groundhog Day and we're left wondering, will this shaky, flaky people ever get into the land? Do you know the movie Groundhog Day? Hands up if you've seen it or know about it. Okay, yeah, it's very old. That's right. It's like Pete and I. It's very old. Um, For those of you who don't know, it's a movie starring Bill Murray who played a weatherman who went to this little town way out in the sticks that was celebrating a festival called Groundhog Day. A groundhog is a kind of like a big, cute, big guinea pig type animal. Bill Murray's character, Phil Connors, hates going to this town and he hates Groundhog Day. Then he finds himself in his own worst nightmare when he's trapped in a time loop and keeps waking up at the beginning of Groundhog Day time and time again. And it seems like the Israelites are reliving the nightmare of disobeying and not being able to enter the land. It seems like a replay of Numbers 14. It seems like a time loop that they're caught in, rebelling against God and bearing the consequences of that. Look with me at chapter 32 from verse 6. Moses said to the Gadites and Reubenites, Should your fellow Israelites go to war while you sit here? Why do you discourage the Israelites from crossing over into the land the Lord has given you? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to look over the land. And then jump down to verse 14. 
And here you are, a brood of sinners, standing in the place of your fathers and making the Lord even more angry with Israel. If you turn away from following him, he will again leave all these people in the wilderness and you will be the cause of their destruction. These are harsh words from Moses because he knew just how serious it was to rebel against God's commands. He feared a groundhog day for Israel. He feared a replay of what was going of what went, what happened back in Numbers 14. So what did Reuben and Gad, those two tribes, do that was so bad? As we read chapter 32, it actually seems a bit of an overreaction. It seems quite innocent what they were saying. Let's look at verse chapter 32 from verse 1. The Reubenites and Gadites, who were a very, had very large herds and flocks, saw that the lands of Jazer and Gilead were suitable for livestock. So they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the community and said, we'll skip over verse 3, the land the Lord subdued before the people of Israel are suitable for livestock and your servants have livestock. If we have found favour in your eyes, they said, let this land be given to your servants as our possession. Do not make us cross the Jordan. It all sounds pretty innocent. But the problem was with where the land was. Take a look at a map. This is a map of Israel and you can see there that, well, actually there's three of the tribes. Manasseh was included in it, but Gad and then Reuben were on the right side of the Jordan River. That blue thing's the Jordan River. And the rest of the tribes had their inheritance to the east on the other side. The reason why Moses reacted so strongly was that Reuben and Gad were taking land that was different to the command of God. God said to take the land west of the Jordan on the other side. But they thought this land was better. And if they didn't cross the Jordan, Moses says that they would avoid the difficult job of fighting the Canaanites and joining with their brothers in driving them out of the land. They would have been shirking their responsibility. Not so obvious as a rebellion back in chapter 14, but it was still a way of saying, no, we think our way is better than God's way. And that threatened to derail God's plan for the whole nation. So at this point, the whole mission to fulfil God's promise of his people in his land, under his rule, was on a knife's edge. And that threatened to derail God's plan of entering the land. Already in the short, rocky history of the nation of Israel, Moses had shown himself able to avert disaster more than once by pleading with God on behalf of his people. And here he shows his skills as a wise negotiator. His cool head, along with the leaders of Reuben and Gad, managed to avoid disaster once again. These two tribes promised Moses that if they were given this land, yes, they will go ahead with the other tribes and fight the Canaanites. Moses warns them to keep their word 
and the, the plan to enter the land is now back on track. As we read this story, what's not spelled out, but it's woven through the plot, it's the subtext of this whole story, is the grace of God. He had every right to cut off Reuben and Gad because they turned their backs on his command to take the land west of the Jordan. But he graciously worked through Moses to accommodate their weakness. He made allowances for their humanness. He allowed this change of plan so that his promise to give Israel the land could stay on track. And as we go on in our last section, we see God's promises to inherit the land getting nearer. The promises of a faithful God allow them to keep the plan on track. Before the focus moves to how God's people are to live in the land, chapter 33 is a kind of transition between the journey to get to this stage and going on into the land of Canaan. It's a summary of their wanderings in the desert from the time that they left Egypt. We're not going to look at it in detail, but every stop along the way is catalogued. The author starts off by saying in verses 3 and 4 that the Israelites marched out in view of the Egyptians who were burying their firstborn because the Lord had brought judgment upon their gods. And this whole chapter is a catalogue designed to recount God's faithfulness in bringing the people all this way and being with them all this time. And the subtext is he will continue to be with his people as long as they obey. Look at verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you live and then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. A reminder that they are a shaky, flaky people who disobeyed in the past. This new generation needs to obey and then they can enter the land. We only have time to glance at chapters 34 to 36 uh, but let, let's have a quick look at it to get the big idea. Here the focus is God's provision for his people to live with him in the land. For chapter 34 is outlining the boundaries of the land the Israelites would receive and 35, the towns, the Levites, they're the priests who served um, before God, the towns that they would inhabit. This isn't just a geography lesson to show the boundaries of Israel. Have a look at verse chapter 34, verse 2, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites and say to them, When you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance is to have these boundaries. And we won't go through the boundaries. The inheritance of God's people. An inheritance... You know what inheritance is. It's when property is passed down from one generation to the next. In this case, it's passed down from God. The inheritance is to God's people. 
from God. He promised the land. And he promised it way back to Abraham when he was living in the land of Canaan as an alien. Let's just glance at back at Genesis chapter 17, verse 8. The whole land of Canaan, this is God talking to Abraham, whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. An everlasting possession. This was their inheritance to fulfil the promises made back to Abraham. This confirms Yahweh would be their God and he would dwell with them. Getting this land was more than just acquiring real estate. It was a sign of God's faithful presence with his people under his rule. Chapter 36 is an interesting way to finish the book of Numbers. God tells Moses that Zelophehad's daughters were to marry within their own tribe so that their inheritance wouldn't pass to another tribe. If you remember, if you're here for the book of Numbers, no doubt you met these women back in chapter 27 where God commanded Moses to let them have their father's inheritance instead of the usual males in the family. But they didn't have any brothers, so they were given dispensation to get the inheritance themselves. The author sums up the reason for God's instructions to them in chapter 36, verse 8. Every daughter who inherits land in any Israelite tribe must marry someone in her father's tribal clan so that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors. No inheritance may pass from one tribe to another for each Israelite tribe is to keep the land it inherits. What's crucial to God is that every Israelite will possess the inheritance of their ancestors so their land would be an everlasting possession to fulfil God's promises to Abraham. This repetition of the idea of inheritance, that every Israelite will get that inheritance, every tribe will have their inheritance, is a way of God reinforcing those promises. The land will be theirs and it's their sign of God's grace and it's their sign of the fulfilment of God's promise that he first gave to Abraham. The land, the land, whole land of Canaan and the individual inheritance of each Israelite symbolise God's presence with his people. It was the place where he ruled and it represented his special relationship with the nation of Israel along with his faithfulness and his grace to them. To finish off, I just want to spend a few minutes thinking about what is in these chapters and the book of Numbers in general for us? Now you might be thinking, yeah, well, so what? That, that's a great story, Marshall, about God bringing the Israelites to the land. But what's it got to do with my life? What's it got to do with us here in, um, in Southwest? The, numbers, the book of Numbers isn't just a story about Israel's history. It also looks forward to, it foreshadows a greater reality. 
it foreshadows a new Israel. That's us. God's people under a new covenant. Just like the old Israel, we can only enter God's presence by his grace because he provides a way for us to be his people and to live with him. The writer of the Hebrews makes a connection between the old Israel and the new Israel. Look with me at um, chapter Hebrews. Chapter Hebrews, did I say chapter? Hebrews chapter 3 is what I meant to say. Hebrews 3, 5 to 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son, the son of God. Moses could only respond to God's work of saving his people by delivering them out of Egypt. Jesus himself saves us from our sins. What Moses did in the desert was only a shadow of what Jesus has done on the cross. Hebrews then goes on in chapter 4, 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we have also had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. What God promised the Israelites, a land where he would dwell with them, is only a shadow of the rest that we have in the Lord Jesus. Just as a promised land symbolised God's rule over his people in his place, this rest for God's people is his church living under King Jesus. Not in a particular place, but everywhere where God's people dwell. And that rest has already begun, but its climax, its fulfilment, will be in the new creation where there will be no more death, no more pain or tears, where we will be renewed, perfected, and we will live with God forever. That's our future. That's our inheritance. A wonderful promise. And Hebrews 4 is warning us not to throw it away because we are like the Israelites. We are a shaky, flaky people. I constantly find myself prone to wandering. I cry out to God when I need him and I, time after time I see his deliverance. But then I so quickly forget. I forget him when things are good. We know the good news of Jesus. Don't take it for granted. Don't ignore it. Don't abuse God's grace. God's wonderful plan that started with Abraham now finds its fulfilment with us. The land of Canaan was only a shadow of the Sabbath rest in the new creation. 
God's promise is to live with us who have been rescued by Jesus forever. Not because of who we are. We are a shaky, flaky people like the Israelites. But we have a generous, faithful God who provides a way for us to enter his rest. Amen.